Howdy, friends. Out of Patience is on hiatus for a couple of weeks, so for the next few Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're going to be dropping our Best Of In Case You Missed It episodes from 2022 and 2021. Of course, if you didn't miss it, (laughs) you don't have to listen to it, but we hope in case you did miss it, you'll enjoy the episode that you missed. I think that made sense. In any case, if you did miss this episode, we hope you enjoy it. New episodes of Out of Patience, Vaxon, and some new correspondence segments will be dropping starting September 6th. Thank you, and have an amazing summer. Dr. Tanya Small. Hello. Welcome to Out of Patience. Thank you for having me. You like it here? I do. I've never been in a room like this. It's a cool studio. We're very proud of it. Ah, I need to take some more pictures of this. Don't worry. We'll, we'll Instagram you properly. I'm not on Instagram. I'll Instagram you properly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My first question is, are you the kind of person that when they shout, is there a doctor in the house? You actually are a doctor. I am a doctor. Sometimes I stay quiet, though. Okay. Because I have lots of PhDs and we just, they hate that joke. Although I don't know some PhDs who do raise their hands. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of doctor. Sorry, I cannot save your life, but, you know, nor can I fly a plane. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a true story. I was on the train and something happened and I'm getting up and they were saying, is there a doctor? And me and the PhD were saying yes. <laughs> so, so you can potentially come in handy. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> when you choose to be handy. But I'm a pediatric right, right, right. So over the age of 21, I may not be that handy. I see. Okay. So if there's some guy who's like limb fell off that's in his 60s, I'm sorry, sir. You're on your own. I will call okay. a different doctor. Fantastic. Yes. All right. We've established your ethics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now I know where you stand. <laughs> There are very few doctor doctors, MDs, who transition into the industry and can lead the way I know that you do. And I want to lean into your origin story, which is God's work, which is pediatric hematology oncology. There's no good Hallmark card for you to read at the end of every day when you get home. Do you have any advice for other doctors in pediatrics on how you cope, how you maintain yourself and stay the best doctor you can? That's actually an interesting question because someone asked me that recently, particularly when I was in a hospital. You see life differently. You really do. The small stuff doesn't matter as much. And when I was in a hospital, I had small kids. So that's a trigger. It is a trigger. It is a trigger. So even when I used to leave, you leave still thinking about those babies that you left in a hospital. You become attached and you become attached just not to the kids, but to the families. So when I would get home and the little things that used to upset me, you just brush it over and you look at your own kids and you appreciate every moment of the day. So you're full and sometimes you're sad because when you lose a patient, it's hard. But it makes you see life differently. And it's it's special. It's really special. So you cope by remembering that every life that you see, that you touch, has an impact. So you make an impact in their lives. And there's nothing better than that. That's an extraordinary answer. You're a human being. Practicing professionals are human beings, too, that have children at home or 
trying to live their lives and what you do for a living is critical to humanity. Yes. But it has its terrible privilege. Yes. So I, I was diagnosed at 21. So I was the odd late adolescent in a pediatric cancer ward. And many of the other people in the ward thought I was the parent of a child. Just a strange dynamic. But I will tell you, the nurses and the doctors in pediatrics, there was so much more compassion and empathy and attention to like the Hippocratic pledge to do no harm. Is it fair to conflate that it's just a different practice mentally, physically, academically, cognitively when you're in pediatrics than adult oncology? So it's hard for me to say because I don't know the personality type that does adults. But I can tell you that with peds, because, I mean, you're looking at this resilient child, right? And they have so much potential. And each child that comes in, especially when they're first diagnosed, you look and you know what's happening. And you're seeing them run around the office and you know what they're about to go through. So it does tug on your heart. And you want to do everything you can because, again, this child has this bright future. And that's what you're fighting to get them to that future. That is what you see in every single individual patient that you're treating. And so, I mean, I remember the story of everyone because they're unique humans that you're trying to get them to that finish line so that they can go out and then shine and be whatever they're supposed to be. That is powerful. What was it like for you to realize that you could transition out of traditional medicine, academia into industry? That was a hard decision. And I remember the day that I decided to go into to pharma because it was based on a patient of mine. So I had a patient who was a baby. Just I think she came to us when she was a couple of weeks old, diagnosed with leukemia. She had these blueberry spots and her mom was on drugs before she had her. And when she had this baby, she got her life together and she decided that she was going to live for this kid. So they brought her in and we diagnosed her with leukemia and she went through her cycles and this baby was supposed to live. And obviously I had lost kids before, but this one, she was supposed to go home. She was on her last cycle and she did not make it. And I had nothing. I could not help her. Like I had, she, she had run out of everything we could have done for her. So I remember that day when she passed as a physician, you're supposed to be strong, right? You have to support the family. And then I went to the bathroom and I bawled like a baby. Then I came out and I was like, you know what? I need more tools. I need more tools in my toolbox. And so that was the day I was like, I'm ready. I want to go into drug development. So it was a hard transition because you're no longer touching the patient. You're no longer going through those emotions and fighting for this kid directly. It feels to me that that's a higher calling because you don't have to live in the end of one anymore. That was the transition in my head, right? Because how do I stop? You know, your patients are, are calling you, texting you, doing whatever they're doing, and you're walking away from that. But then to go into something where I can probably help more people because I've experienced what I experienced. It's just a scaling mechanism to really drive. It's like a force multiplier to have more impact at a more meta level. At any point when you transition over to this new part of your career, when did you maybe have that aha moment like, this is actually going to be something I can be a force multiplier for? I think when I got my first approval of a drug, 
Because that moment <laughs> is like no other, especially your first one. You go, this will work. And it's going to impact thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. And I remember the first approval. <laughs> I saw my boss. I jumped up on him and hugged him. I was like, we did it. And like, I was like, tears. Like, we are going to reach so many patients and help so many patients. And that was the day I was like, this is what I do. And this is what I love. I got chills. Wow. It's like, you know, you're giving birth to a new baby yes. and you know there's going to be this massive ripple effect in boat wake because this is the moment it starts. Yeah. And I still like, feel that moment. I can see you feeling it right now. <laughs> she's gone on like Captain Marvel binary on me right now. She's, <laughs> she's, she's bright as the sun. But seriously, that is that is the perfect answer to the question is when you realize you can force multiply the impact of that one child you want to help. And I think even sometimes when we're behind the door, behind the wall, it's always important to remind the team about it. So sometimes I'll bring in a video about a patient or we'll bring in a patient so they can walk the team through what they feel, what they go through, because that's what you're treating. That's what you're working towards. These are treatments to help her or him or them. But I mean, the idea of actually involving the actual patients in the actual process is shouldn't be a new idea. Who knew we could do this? Who knew that the person actually who has it should be the one letting you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. You're starting to see that's the direction of pharma, too. I think it's a good trend. To me, it's critical. So it's very clear that you've seen tangible, actionable results of your decision to enter this sector. Are you starting to see more doctors transitioning from academia to drug development? Yes. I mean, and I'm focusing specifically on oncology, where... As a practicing physician, you, again, realize you just don't have all the tools you need to help this person. Mm -hmm. And so in pharma, we work very closely with physicians. So in pharma, although you don't touch the patient, to me, you're just as responsible for the outcome of that patient. And so because of that partnership, I think physicians who are treating patients are starting to see the need of more drug development, of more tools, of more medicines. And so they're coming over a lot more. So, I mean, you look across the industry, you're seeing top physicians, top experts coming over to drug development to quickly move the needle on medicine. I mean, it just speaks to the conundrum of healthcare as a supply-only economy. The buyer isn't the end user. Right. I don't want to be shopping in the store, but someone's making decisions for me. How do I know what's best for me? Who's in charge of ensuring I get what I need? And choices and decisions about who's protecting my interests. Yes. All right. So with that, we'll be right back with Dr. Tanya Small. You are listening to this show on the Offscript Health Radio Network. Yes, I said radio. My name is Matthew Zachary, co-founder and CEO here at Offscript Health. And I wanted to thank you, the listener, for supporting our hosts, their guests, and our entire network of acclaimed shows, limited series, and major documentaries. In doing so, you are helping to fulfill our mission to make healthcare suck less for all of us together. To learn more about Offscript Health and our network of other shows, series, and documentaries, visit offscripthealth.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. So for someone who built their career in pediatric oncology, hematology, you now work in gynecologic oncology. 
which isn't necessarily something you deal with in pediatrics. How did that happen? Talk about agility of learning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you come into drug development, now you're going broader and you're thinking about multiple different cancers, multiple different patients. And remember, some drugs work for multiple different tumors. Which we should remind the listeners is a brand new concept that came out of the Human Genome Project. Yes, yes. It wasn't just like four drugs for everyone. Now one drug can work for tons of people. Exactly. So we're learning so much about diseases and the genetics of the disease and and targeted types of approaches. In drug development, you have to learn it all. So I, I span across hematology, oncology, gyne malignancies to really understand the disease, to develop the right drugs that can treat and again, expands across all. So I started really focusing deeply on gynonc, particularly because to me, that area did not get a lot of attention. To me, it was just the silent, yet deadly diseases that did not get a lot of funding, did not get a lot of support, did not get a lot of airway, did not get a lot of attention. And yet, they had diseases that somebody needed to focus on. Mm -hmm. And there were potential to get them close to cure at times. And so... Another um, thing that's new and exciting too, we are actually at a point now where you can likely be actually cured. That word was so user-defined in the past. I mean, actually, I remember even when I first started, you couldn't see the C word. You cannot say right. that I'm saying the cure word. And now we're saying our goal is to get to cure. And so when you look at, again, guy malignancies, we were learning a lot about the genetics. We, I mean, you think through 2014, before that, it was just chemotherapy and surgery. Napalm, done. Right, right. And now you have like the PARP inhibitors. That are making a vast difference in these patients' lives. Or if you think about endometrial cancer, before again, chemo, right? You're talking about shooting blindly in the dark. And now we have immune therapies coming in with less toxicity. So I think times have changed, treatments are changing, and we're learning a lot more about these diseases. And not only that, we're partnering a lot more with patient organizations. So that, again, their voices can be heard. How do we amplify the information? How do we get more funding to these organizations? How do we get more funding to drug development when it comes to gyne malignancies? And quite frankly, just even as a woman, how do we get women to advocate more for themselves? How do we make sure they're educated on their bodies and speak up when they have questions and put themselves first? So to me, it runs that full spectrum that I want to give my support to. It's 2022. Where do women learn about risk? Where's the peer groups? Talk us through how you see the ecosystem working today. I think it's multifactorial. I think it's everywhere. So if you think through patient organizations, to me, that is powerful. And how do we even make them more powerful? Breast cancer has powerful, powerful, powerful patient organizations. How do we give that type of support to the gyne malignancies? So that's one way. I think, again, pushing education, making sure people understand symptoms. So when you think about these ovarian cancer, the symptoms are so vague that sometimes you may feel something, you may feel bloated, you may not feel well, you may have constipation, whatever it is, and you don't pay attention to it. How do we make sure that we are educating people early so that they, if they have these symptoms, they quickly go to a doctor? And also, how do we make sure they have the right set of questions to ask? How do we make sure they are uninhibited? 
or disinhibited to ask the questions that's on their mind. But that goes to being your own advocate if you feel dismissed by that yes. doctor as well, which is rampant, especially right. in younger women. Right. So then, I mean, that's another issue, right? The third piece is making sure that we're educating the physicians on how yes. <laughs> to partner with the patient mm -hmm. so that they're actually not dismissing the symptoms. They're taking them seriously. They're actually taking the time to go through the information, giving them the time. And then in terms of just even payers and, and access, I think that there's so many factors that go into it. And then preventative. Yeah. How do we, again, make sure that we're really getting screened? Because of COVID, 10 million yep. people mm -hmm. did not get screened. You could imagine the aftermath of that. So how do we make sure, again, that that becomes a priority? Making sure that women are put in their health first. Right. And my vantage on this is we're looking at a bifurcated approach to physician education of patients, but consumer education of consumers. And this speaks to the theme of my entire show is can science speak person? I want my doctor, my surgeon, my oncologist, my hemonc to be highly literate and aware and educated about what's best for me. But that often comes at the loss of them speaking normal human conversation to me. How do you see that balance ever getting squared? There's a couple of ways. Number one is educating physicians. Right. How to talk person. A good example is clinical trial. So you think through a physician who wants to put a patient on a trial and they talk physician, they don't talk person. Right. And so people go yes or no, and they're afraid to ask all these questions. And the physician takes like 10 minutes and they talk this language. Now we have ways in which we can play even different videos to explain what this means, explain what the clinical trials, ex explain the treatment, explain what they can expect instead of giving them a 50-page document and physician speak. The iTunes terms of service version yes. of medicine. <laughs> Correct. So I think educating the physician on how to speak person. The second one is making sure we have different tools that patients can learn from. There are ways they can take this information home, go through it with their family so that their family can be involved if Maybe they Maybe learn so about choose. it on the podcast. Le I like that. I just went all full-blown fifth wall meta with the yes. listeners now. Maybe not this podcast. We're having too much fun. I want to go back to progress. It's so easy to take it for granted. I'll do a plug for our documentary, The Cancer Mavericks, which talks about the 50-year history of advocacy. And... Things we just didn't even have 50 years ago that we have today, one of which, of course, is the idea of diagnostics that test your DNA. Yes. Can you point to, in your storied career, any one, two, or three specific innovations? What really shocked you that this is a thing now? There's a couple of things. Going back to your point, diagnostics. But the diagnostics I'm thinking about is like when you could do what we call like circling tumor DNA. So basically, it's like you could take your blood, right, and actually see the tumor cells in the, in the DNA instead of having to biopsy a tumor. Imagine that. And you can learn what the genetic makeup is of that tumor and the multiple genetic makeups of that tumor. Without ripping your part. Without going in surgically. Now, it's not a full thing yet, so we can do it, but we're studying it to understand how if what we're seeing in this, what we call CTDNA, matches what you see on a biopsy. And if that's real, imagine you can bypass surgery to start doing that. And imagine you'll be able to continue to follow that patient through a blood draw. So to me, that is innovation and that is futuristic. And I think we're going to get there very fast. And we're looking at that in certain cancers now quite a bit. All right. So let's talk about the obvious pain 
of access to care. What's your take on any progress in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think access has just so many dimensions. Access to education is one of them. Some people don't even know certain medicines exist. Certain people don't even know that they can get treated. Some people don't know that things can be preventable. So that's access to information. But one of the things I'm really passionate about is access to medicines in general. There's still huge inequities when it comes to being able to get access to treatment. And a lot of it is dependent upon where you live, who you are, and who you know, and what you know. I've noticed, especially over the last two years, there's been a big push to make sure we try to deliver equitable access from many different ways, whether from our payer system. I think there's been a lot of patient organizations and advocates pushing for equitable access. And also, pharma is now stepping up and doing quite a bit to make sure that we are leveling the playing field when it comes to access. But then the third piece is, and this is one of the things we started doing a lot more, is doing a better job when it comes to compassionate use. Does that come into play a lot in pediatrics? It comes into play across pediatrics and adult medicine. It's really heavily focused in oncology because oncology medicine matters and time matters when it comes to oncology. So there's a big push across the industry when it comes to access to the compassionate use programs. So wrapping up, I'm a newly diagnosed patient. I enter the oncology store. I don't want to be shopping here. Where is that experience going to improve in the next couple of years? There's a couple of things. Number one, it's about making sure you're educated. And I think education to patients has expanded quite a bit. And there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, but there's a heavy focus. Making sure you have access to treaters and making sure that you have your needs met. Because just because you have access to treaters, right, you may be a working person. You need to work. You need to deal with your diagnosis. You need to do all these things. And so we're trying to put things in place to make life easier for you. How do we change your experience throughout? How do we make sure that you're getting treatment but not being inconvenienced? How do we make sure that you're getting treated and not filled with all the toxicity of some of these drugs. So there's a lot of attention being paid to that. And then also from a payer standpoint, how do we make sure that you're not going bankrupt while you're trying to live? And so all those things are, there's a huge focus on it. And from multiple different people, from the physicians, from the patients themselves, from the advocacy groups, from the pharmaceutical companies across the board, you have the entire care team or the entire treatment team working hard to make sure that that paradigm changes to what we just described. I love the idea of protecting consumers who happen to be patients to guarantee they get what they are entitled to know. So any final thoughts to your fellow medical professionals on what you hope we are all aspiring to accomplish together? There's a saying that we say in my team, and I think that we all need to hold hands with this. Our job is to really revolutionize the outcome, but not just the outcome, but the experience of every individual that has been diagnosed with cancer. And we got to do that together. Dr. Tanya Small is the vice president and global medical oncology franchise head and the head of R&D inclusion and diversity at GlaxoSmithKline. Did I get that right? Got it right. Well-earned syllables. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's all for now. 
If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.